Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. It's Helen here, the voice of Azu, Enola, and Laverne. Today, I'm here to tell you about Wobegone, a podcast launched on the RQ Network. Wobegone is a weekly horror sci-fi audio drama series about the nature of power and the implications of linear time. Wobegone follows Mike Walters, who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real-life consequences quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible. Each episode has a unique soundtrack composed by creator and writer Dylan Griggs. Listen to Wobegone spelled woe period begone wherever you listen to podcasts or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts have fun and see you later hi we are here to talk to you about sucre bay a perfumery we love so much they have not one but two official the magnus archives perfumes one inspired by john and martin and another inspired by the mysterious ex altiora a book from the library of Jürgen Leitner. Sucre Bay also make official perfumes for our friends over at Old Gods of Appalachia, including Blood and Bone and Unknown Roads. You should check them out. Sucre Bay is a women-owned and operated perfumery that is vegan and cruelty-free, witchy and sometimes irreverent. Expect perfumes like You're in a Cult, Call Your Dad, or Vodka and Swearing, the ever-popular Chloroform, or Papa's Waffles. Sucre Bay do a range of exciting and unique fragrances you won't find anywhere else. They broadly fit into the following five categories. Classic scents that pass the test of time. Goth scents for those who like it dark and mysterious. Witchy scents that are mysterious and potiony. Nerdy scents for all the self-professed nerds out there. And femme scents, the classically floral and sweet scents, but we recommend them for anyone of any gender. Sucre Bay small batch perfumes are not like any other. You can find out more by going to www.rustyquill.com forward slash perfume. That's rustyquill.com forward slash P-E-R-F-U-M-E. Also, you can join the supportive and kind Sucre Bay community with over 18,000 members on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Sucre Bay. That's S-U-C-R-E-A-B-E-I-L-L-E. Hi, everyone. Alex here. I'd just like to take a moment to thank some of our patrons. Spooky, Kate Talbot, Lisa Kay, Jari Thorup Parlow, Lou Harrison, Elliot, Claudia Howard, Amanda Lord, Sarah Cavanna, Jessica Freeman, Fresh Cat, Dog, Elizabeth Kalbacher, Ayn Morgan, Corvin J. Lynn, Kit, Cody Wolf, Iris Lazuli, Spa, Carrie Leclerc. Thank you all. We really appreciate your support. If you'd like to join them, Go to www.patreon.com forward slash Rusty Quill and take a look at our rewards. Hello. 
Hello again. <laughs> Welcome to the Magnus Archives Season 4 Q&A Session 2. Part 2. Part 2 because we we have a lot of two questions. Two question, too furious. Yep. Um, from our perspective, we stopped Step up for... Step to the questions. We have stopped for five minutes before immediately pressing on with a new round of questions. Um, so, with that in mind then, I'm going to... Q&A look... 2, question boogaloo. <laughs> Q&A 2, the quickening. I'm going to jump into the first question. Q&A 2, Q&A harder. <laughs> This one's at an airport, but it's basically the same thing. Miri asks, Was Ben aware before the last few episodes of season four that Elias was possessed by Jonah Magnus? If not, when did you guys tell him and what was his reaction? Oh, when did he find ben out? Ben it... well in it, like ben, more than yeah. a season. It's really weird because what different voice actors do and don't know is often kind of determined by them. Yeah, it's non-standardised. Um, because generally we'll we'll lay out all of their story uh, to them pretty much from the off, but also we're really bad at not just massively talking spoilers when we're in the production space. So some voice actors will... Faye specifically is very keen to not be spoiled. Which um, does not gel with is, how I direct which at is, all. Which is, which is lovely. Because um, they are very into actually listening along. Lyd used to really not like spoilers. She gave up the ghost but then, at some point. then gave up the struggle at, at, at some point and just like, yeah, okay, just tell me what happens. So th- some people argue that you give a better portrayal mm. if you don't know what's going to be coming next. Sure. I argue the opposite and that I think it leads to better script reading if you do know the destination because you can focus on like the foreshadowing and making the bits that matter land more yeah. and so on. It is up for debate. It is like the, there are different schools of directing. But generally speaking, I err on the side of telling people pretty much their arc yeah. as far as is reasonable. So I wouldn't, like, in so, episode one, tell someone how they're going to end in season five. Yeah, we but... told Ben right from the off that Elias was one of the big bads. Yep. Uh, we didn't go into a lot of detail with him at the time, uh, both because Jonah Magnus as a thing hadn't been fully fleshed out for us, yeah, and also because he hadn't even been mentioned in the series at that point, so there wouldn't have been any context for Ben to understand anyway. And it would have been irrelevant to his characterization. I think we laid out everything about Elias to him early season three, shortly before the shortly before the big villainous turn. Yeah, Ben knew he was the big bad straight out of the gate. He didn't know the. Well, name. he knew. No, he knew he was he knew, a so, bad. So he knew he was a big bad he didn't think he was an arbitrary bad yeah um and then yeah end of season two beginning of season three were like here's the nature of your badness Mm. but i don't have a specific date or anything no and generally ben has been one of the ones who i've always enjoyed his reactions to discovering the twists quite a lot with different voice actors some of them are like oh cool uh some of them like oh okay Ben is very much a sort of like an appreciative like ho 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 ah but only in a se- so Ben Ben's very expressive and I feel safe in saying with Ben what makes me laugh is Ben doesn't hide if he doesn't approve of a story move as well yeah so if you give him a story move and he doesn't think it makes sense it'll immediately be a hmm right okay hmm what until I he gets know. The, until he gets the remaining character things that are relevant it has happened for magnus once where he's like oh, did I, it? I can't remember what it was i think it was something like why is he killing lightning he was like cool thing i don't oh, understand why yeah. this is happening no because we gave him the script before we'd laid yeah. out so his... he, he basically turned up going yeah it's a cool story move i don't understand why this is happening and he doesn't do that oh he goes uh cool there's a there's a problem that needs solving yeah. but then the second that he's given the context it goes okay cool great but yeah, yeah he's a very fact, expressive that man. sounds like that might have been the time we actually laid everything I feel like that might actually have been it so that's even earlier than we think okay in that case then I am going to carry on with a little bit which is a similar one from CMP which is how much the backstory do the general cast know in advance Uh, yeah we kind of covered this a little bit in the last question the answer is it's very much up to them Uh, most of them I think know a random smattering of significant upcoming twists and Though we'll, not from season five, actually. That's we what I was going to say. We're now in a really weird situation where for most people, yeah. us saying this is what's going to happen has generally resulted in, and then the world ends. Yeah. So we're actually in a weird yeah, situation very few where of them performers now... What happens after the world yeah, ends? So now we're in a situation where I'd actually say performers know the least about their arcs yeah. than they have for years because everyone was always satisfied with, and then the world ends. Yeah. I think Ben was the only one who, of course, goes... But then what? You know? Yeah, Ben knows a little bit of what's uh, what's coming. He does. Um, But yeah, it's 
always weird having people, also people within the wider Rusty Quill family, who sort of come into Magnus, because they'll have osmosed stuff yeah, yeah. Uh, from a production point of view. Like when we brought Helen as the therapist, which, oh, incidentally, that's... Mm, I, I'm really sad about Helen as the therapist. Uh, just because everyone decided that she sounded really spooky and thus was really plot relevant. And I was like, oh no, we just... We forgot to cast someone because it was such a small bit. You, well, well, you no, said no, that we, we forgot. Cut. We ran out. We, yeah. we ran out of people to cast. Like Everyone who was on our casting books was either unavailable, out of the country, or already cast in other roles by that point. And then Helen was there for a, um, a gaming recording, and like we'd kind of penciled her in for some stuff in season five, yeah. but we were like, okay, well, it's it's fine. It's a very small role. Uh, it's just like three lines. No one's going to really notice. Like, we can reuse you in season five. But now everyone decided that the therapist was massively significant and massively because uh, we important. introduced a speaking character in season four. It was just meant to be a playful swipe at the Black Tapes and Tannis and the Bright Sessions, all the ones where it's like, okay, so now we're going to get a lot of story through these tape recordings of a therapy session. I thought it'd be really funny to have a, oh, can I record these therapy sessions for exposition? No, you can't. No Stop. exposition. No exposition. I thought that'd be a really funny little joke. Didn't just come to play for a little hope, sp- did it? No, everyone no. has been hanging theories on it. And I'm like, oh, that's... That's not ideal. Is it too late to make the therapist Jonah's therapist? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, How did you go about scripting and editing the sounds of the apocalypse in the season finale? Well, from a scripting side, uh, I think... Oh, what was it? Something along the lines of uh, the world goes horribly wrong, everything is bad forever. I think that's the stage direction or as close as it gets. Yeah. In terms of audio... I am going to reveal something I didn't think I was going to reveal, but I'm feeling I'm feeling honest today. Feeling fruity. And I don't like my soundscape for that episode at the end. Oh. I don't feel like I did it justice properly. If I had another stab at it, I think I could do a better job. However, that is in a way where I know in my heart of hearts that the only person that would tell the difference between the one I would make and yeah. that one is me. In terms of how it was made, bizarrely, I actually used loads of leftovers from The Lonely. I did loads of soundscape experimentation with The Lonely and ended up with a few that were completely inappropriate for The Lonely, but quite useful. However, the soundscape for The Apocalypse is actually a bit too dense. There's more layers than the human ear is really going to be able to pick up on. Um, So there are things like um, pitch shifted and slowed down screams... There are some winds from an actual desert in there. Like a too tall cake. There are a... Oh, there's a really peculiar distortion that I managed to stumble on where basically it is the sound of a magnetic tape breaking. Like a weird cake. (laughs) But yeah, again, it's a bit... It sounds strange. I'd probably strip a bit out Mm. and make it a bit clearer what's going on if I had my way. Um, Too much detail on that one, I think. Disagree. Story questions. All right, let's hit it. This one's from Bells. Good question. I like this one. Will we get any more information about the original Elias Bouchard? Uh, Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Like, his major contribution to the story is having his eyes nicked. It is true. Um, But that doesn't mean he won't, uh, that we won't find out a bit more about him. I think more context is probably going to come through at some point. I don't think it is something upon which the entire story will pivot. No, it's not. It's not. not. Elias-centric masterpiece. Yeah, the... Pre-Jonah Elias uh, is not super plot significant, but that doesn't mean he won't uh, get a little bit more exploration if we have time. I like to think as well, honestly, he's just not that interesting a guy. No, That's he's kind a, of the point of him. Like, he's, in, in my in my mind, he's kind of a lightly posh dickhead who <laughs> just kind of coasted through uni uh, and landed a just a weird little academic job. Uh, and crucially... Didn't have a lot of connections who would miss him if something were to happen to his eye colour. <laughs> or shape. <laughs> or presence. <laughs> right, on to a writing question yep, specifically. Grand. This one's from Des. I find that writing and working on intensive, dark material can often be mentally slash emotionally taxing. How do you, especially on long takes, sessions or scenes, take care of yourself? Ooh, um, this is actually something I'm not great at. Mm. I find that the emotional aspect doesn't get to me as much because I tend not to write things that I personally find too 
emotionally draining. Uh, sometimes it will end up in that territory, especially with like the lonely. Yeah, yeah. But for the most part, I write the sort of horror that though it might give me that sort of ooh, scare uh, as I'm writing it, it's not going to the emotion I'm getting from it is a sort of kind of slightly sadistic glee, I guess. Mm. So I don't find the writing of that super draining. What I'm bad at is I'm very much a, a deadline cruncher, which is something I've been gradually getting better at over the course of Magnus. Certainly early on, my challenge was not shotgunning the writing of two episodes like the day before a uh, recording and absolutely destroying my sleep pattern. Within recordings itself, a lot of it's just drink a lot of water, take regular breaks, don't scream so much that all the oxygen leaves the room and you all start to feel dizzy. Yeah, that's the thing. You get used to that. You acclimatise, you really do. <laughs> um, from my perspective, I'm quite lucky in that I've said before sometimes I'm a bit weird when it comes to the writing side. No matter what I've written or no matter what I've worked on, it just doesn't occupy the same part of me as actual real world emotion. For me, scripts, even when I'm writing the most emotional thing ever, are still a, almost a puzzle to be solved. Yeah. Um, so it, it doesn't have that effect on me. I would say... In terms of other cast, this season has definitely been the one that has prompted the most emotional responses from performers. Again, 90% of it due to the lonely, if I'm honest. And there has been ones where part of being a director is learning to read the room. And part of that is being like, cool, I don't know, we are behind schedule for an hour. We still now need to take a 15 minute break because if we don't, you're going to break someone or you're going to end up just completely ruining a recording day because no one's in a state to record and things like also, that. Also, there's uh, if somebody sort of comes into the recording in a bad way because of stuff outside yeah, of that the show, happens. you've got to make sure to just give them the space they need and fundamentally work around it because their well-being is always going to be 100% more important than whatever your own artistic vision might be. The self-care thing is really important. It's extremely important on the artistic side because we have been exposed to a lot of false narratives that sacrifice of self is a necessity for artistic endeavour. And I don't believe that is the case. I think that, yeah, you ultimately you have to put time into the thing that you make. But there has it has mutated over the years into the ideas that you have to. Yeah, yeah, you have to punish yourself in order to make something of worth. And it's not true. Also, I think the the overwhelming narrative that is built up that your productivity is your value oh. is something that I mean, we both struggle with, I think. And the worst thing is that it doesn't world. actually make you more productive. It, it just doesn't. makes it just makes you feel worse it when you're not doing stuff. Really, really high in a way that they don't need to be. Yeah, it just means that if you're not doing work, you feel really bad. It doesn't actually mean you're doing more work. And it's something that I think we both still struggle with, but it's a very important thing to learn. Creativity to is gradually... not a stick to hit yourself with. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's that yeah, simple. Yeah. And productivity has become the new way of disguising the old yeah. idea. It's the whole thing of like, ugh. On my seventh cup of coffee, and I haven't slept because I've been. It's like don't, oh, no, that's don't that's bad. Don't don't that. do that. It's not a good thing. Um, yeah, people people are right. Which is something I'm. Yeah, we're we're still I actively struggle. But I will never ever do the thing of like. Yeah, it's when people brag about. Oh, you know, I'm getting by on like four hours sleep. It's like, what are you doing? Why? Stop. That's Stop. A, Sleep is good. That's a. If nothing else, it's inefficient. Oh, here <laughs> we, that's the okay, real here evil. We go, here it's we inefficient. Go. Okay. Here we go. You gotta you gotta maintain the engine. And that's real. That's real evil here. Is the inefficiency of it as a system? I would say it is about your own well-being. And what's this? We're finally dropping caricatures and laying bare. That was Alex's, that was the truth. Alex's okay. core. It genuinely really bugs me. It bugs me because you're making life harder for yourself in the long run. Trading off your long term for your short term doesn't work. It goes wrong. You end up running a podcast cover. <laughs> okay, that one. That one was a joke. <laughs> Um, I, sh- I should bring this mostly. Ba- <laughs> I'm going to bring this back. Yeah, let's wrangle it. Just drag it resembling back onto, an actual episode um, yeah. here. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to loop back around then. Sure, to cast. sure, sure. Oh, interesting. Okay, uh, this one's from Orchid. Alex, what was it like to voice Martin while he was in the Forsaken? <sighs> Staying with the the high truth, which I'm trying to do for this Q and A, actually really annoying because. It just so happens at the time we were in a real quagmire of production issues. 
it was when the stuff was going wrong with Alistair's um, audio and the technical stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's really, really difficult when a day of production is going down the toilet to then go, and now I'm sad and kind of distant. Because what you want to do is go, So... So problematically calm. Yeah, I would love, I would love to give a real deep, like, expose my core of my being about what it was like. Honestly, 90% of it was just trying to take how a day is going, a bad day, putting it in a box, putting it on the shelf and getting the audio. It took more takes than it should have. Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm just remembering the, when we were recording the, the cabin scenes. Uh, and you'd just hurt oh, your foot. I had re- so, so I had uh, really, really a lot of foot pain due to like minor surgery and, and, and it was stuff. giving you this weird manic energy. And I was Real like, weird. And I was like, no, it's it's domestic. It's chill. It's relaxed. It's a respite before all the the horror. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, I'll let you know if I see any good cows. Oh, like, good cows, good cows. Yeah, it was not good. We had to do a complete retake. It was not good. Um, uh. Here's something useful. In terms of points of reference in order to play Martin in that situation, due to varying situations, I have spent chunks of time around people who are on things like um, heavy neural inhibitors, things like that. Mm. Often it's just like a pain medication, things things like that. Uh, so of all the things, I weirdly use that as a bit of a touchstone. But in terms of, again, whether it emotionally upset me or anything, I'm really sorry. Mostly I was angry when I was recording those lines. <laughs> that might not be as, as glamorous and, and To be fair, like my, my, my heart-rending like, shouts for Martin were mainly just us doing it again and again, trying to get the exact levels right so that they weren't clipping, but I- were also clearly shouted and johnny was being really good with me because i was i was getting <laughs> i was getting real antsy i was getting real antsy that day okay we're going to abandon that for a little bit so i can just forget the memories sure just forget that sure. feeling and not get that manic energy back we're going to go on to talking a bit more about story again yep specifically from constantin valdor mm-hmm. given the actions eric and melanie took to leave the archives what extreme actions would one need to take to sever their connection to other entities oh so you're talking What's like how would you question. how would you throw a roadblock against the desolation or how would you do the same against the end things like that? I don't feel like there is an option for the end unless you are making no. I mean, all actions with that would get you further in because it's showing an obsession that the end kind of is yeah. Into. Like the like the ends are, are yeah the ends actually a really interesting one because because it works very strongly in both directions. I mean the like the the thing to do with the end is essentially what. Georgie ends up accidentally doing, which is just no longer fearing it. Just check out. Just like, and in Georgie's case, it wasn't something that she, or rather, I feel that like after a certain point, she did choose it, but it's a bit mucky. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a f- sort of a grey area. In terms of other ones, um, though, yeah, that's a real good question because it's, it's not about the physical action; it's about the categorical and very concrete rejection also via dream logic as well yeah like via, via sort of fairy tale dream logic mm. um oh i don't think this is the one we're going to have to be able to answer on this for the simple reason that it's actually going to require quite a lot of thought yeah i mean it's like i'll, I'll be honest it took quite a while to to, yeah, to nail down for the for the beholding because like while it while it's technically a very simple act a very simple answer it took a quite a journey to actually arrive at that as the there, there were sort of various drafts and it was only when we like came up with that we were like yes that'll work that's that's yeah. the one i'm trying to think i don't even have another a one for any i mean something like something like, the, something like the desolation if you were to legitimately sacrifice your life for someone you loved i suppose but at the same time but does it again, count as being that's... severed from an entity if you're annihilated uh, well, like, in well, the attempt well if it, it would be if you survived Oh You'd sure, uh, like, okay. Like I don't a, think a, a pure altruism. Sacrifice yeah, like style. like it would need to like I think for the desolation like a pure act of altruistic love, but at the same time, that's not quite as that's not quite as concrete as yeah, like yeah. you need to you need to blind yourself because what we would need to you do need is to destroy need your to, eyes. What we would do is we'd have to take that as an idea and then find a symbolic yeah. physical action to manifest that emotional swap. Mm. And I don't know what that would be. I'd have, like I said, that's a really good question. Where I have oh, the to stranger, get a lot of uh, the stranger, you got to run through um, the town centre nude. <laughs> Just bear it all. 
no disguises. And if anyone you know draws attention, you have to engage them in a conversation. You don't just you don't just fly. Yeah, no, by. no, absolutely. You, no, you you walk through and you engage people. You're very very honest about what you're doing. Absolutely. There you go. That'd work. <laughs> <laughs> that took a weird turn at the end. Oh, the flesh you go veggie. That's not. No- <laughs> I knew you'd say that. That's not correct. You know it's what? Not, I know. I know. In fact, I know. that's that's going to jump me back to. This is going to jump me back to a um, question on cast because right, yeah, 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 sure. right? This is from Hannah. Sure. Is Johnny a vegetarian? Honestly, after all the meat content, I might just become one myself. No, my relationship with meat is, as you might have guessed, complicated. <laughs> Basically, I, I, I'm not a vegetarian. I wasn't a vegetarian at the beginning. It was much more a fear about body horror and gore and then in episode 30 i did a bunch of research into abattoirs and was like oh Oh, no the industrialized meat industry is real bad and it's been something of a you know a low-key struggle since because i i really i really like meat and at this point i don't eat a lot of it especially because a lot of other people in my life are vegetarian or vegan so like most of the meals that uh, that I cook at home um, or that we eat at home are, are vegetarian, but I will still generally, you know, I might get a get a steak if if we're going out to eat or, or a burger or that sort of thing. So I feel that you are I definitely am meat light as a person. Yeah, I I, f- I consider I try to be a conscientious meat eater, even though that's kind of a contradiction in terms. But you do have a coherent sort of set of rules in oh, terms of I, like I, what counts as people and not. Oh yeah. Also, uh, I have occasionally seen people being like, "Oh, this guy's got to be a vegetarian because he keeps saying that there's no difference between human meat and uh, animal meat." And I'm like, "Oh no, the the other way around." In that, I don't think. Like, let's be clear. Probably wouldn't eat. I mean, I wouldn't just eat a person. I mean, okay. I'm, I wouldn't. I wouldn't I, eat a person. There are contexts where I would. I mean, no, no. There, there, there are contexts. Like, this is this is the point. Like, I feel that. I mean, obviously, prion disease aside, like, I wouldn't actually because prion disease is horrible. Oh, God. Um, But I don't fundamentally see a difference between eating other meats and eating human meats. You need, like, like a short, pithy, like, three-word phrase that encapsulates don't kill people. And also, meat is meat, but no, no. Yeah, meat is meat is meat. But, like, also, if someone was dying and was like, hey, after I die, cut me up and eat me. I probably would. So diving in then, just because I know this specific thing about you. Corvids, people or not people? Oh, Corvids are people. Octopus, people or not people? Oct- uh, yeah, the, the, I, have a list of, um, I have a list of animals in my head that I consider people. Uh, let's see, octopuses, corvids, uh, dolphins. Apes. Apes. If I believe an animal is capable of choosing... To- oh, elephants. Elephant, elephants are yeah, 100% yeah. people. Yep. Uh, if I believe that an animal is capable of choosing to do evil then it's a person <laughs> you've never mentioned that to me before well but no because there are elephant serial killers true uh like true. corvids will pass down their vengeance list oh, but to vengeance. their children oh but that, now you're getting into and, like but the, the nature but the thing of is, evil no but the, yeah i know this is why i say it's a very personal thing okay because i don't really have a, a solid like this is what evil is but at the same time i can be like okay so these dolphins helped dick van dyke when he floated out to sea, these dolphins murder baby seals for fun. Those are clearly actions that are not being taken based on instinct because different dolphins are engaging with the exact same thing in different ways, some of which are cruel and some of which are altruistic. It's a, it's a very weird, very personal thing, but honestly, I think if an animal is capable of doing something and I'm like, you know what, that was a dick move and you could have not done that. I think it's a person. I love that your criteria for what constitutes like a person is: are they capable of badness? Yeah. <laughs> are they, like, are, what a bleak no, vision. Oh, no, of the okay, world. okay. It's not: are they capable of badness? It's: would I judge them for being bad? <laughs> like, if a dog does something bad, I'm like, oh, that's a, a real shame. The owner's messed up. That dog was following what it's been taught. Was following yeah, its yeah. instincts. I don't blame the dog. But an octopus that climbs out is tank. Oh, oh, yeah, and an octopus that climbs that, sneaking uh, that, around. An octopus and that stealing. every night unscrews the lid to its tank, climbs out, oozes itself across the aquarium floor into <laughs> other fish tanks, eats the fish, oozes back out, back into its own tank, and then screws the lid back on. 
that's a bad octopus. So what we're saying, Hannah, is thank you for a question that I knew would immediately open a can of worms in oh, the best God. way possible. I'm so I love problematic it. now. <laughs> Johnny <laughs> Sims, definite cannibal. <laughs> we're going to move on. We've I've never eaten on. a human. We've got to move on. Unconfirmed. Okay, so uh, this is a production question from Forney. Uh, when you record as Martin and the Archivist, how often are you recording together in the same place versus recording separately and combining the dialogue in post? We're always together. There has been one time where we haven't, and it is because a single line needed a pickup from well, okay, me. Okay, so let, let's, let's be clear. Uh, all my dialogue is recorded with Alex in the room. Sometimes there have been Martin lines that he's recorded in isolation to drop in, uh, but all my lines are recorded in the presence of Alex. Follow-on question from Playful Evil. Has Johnny actually been in the same room as Alistair Stewart yet, or have they never managed it? Once. We had... Uh, to be fair, I've met Alistair in other scenarios, uh, but we were recording together for the final, the big uh, confrontation between uh, Peter and uh, the archivist. Yeah. This ROM is from Theatre underscore Ghost 98. Sure. I want to know about the other 97. Melanie had protection from being a part of the archivist's nightmare zoo, for lack of a better term, because she worked for the Institute. Did she lose that after she quit, or is she exempt because she can't see anymore? Oh, I don't think we actually uh, actually addressed this directly. It hasn't been Um, addressed in the series. I would probably say, like, if it's not in the text, it's not canon my head can would probably be that severing her connection with the eye probably means that she doesn't i've uh, been working under the same assumption the nightmare zoo but also it would only have been for a short time anyway because the rules um, have, changed. have changed significantly so we'll do for one from uh an alert is jan kilbride still alive in the buried given john said it didn't help that gertrude killed him before chucking him in eh Kinda. I think that's all we can really say on it. Yeah, chucking someone into one of the entities is probably a bad idea, regardless of whether they're alive or dead. Correct. I haven't really worked out the details of Jan Kilbride's situation and how much it is still a situation, but it's probably not great. (laughs) From Demon Cleric, were Agape and the Monster Pig animals that became avatars? Ooh, what a good question. Huh. I'd mainly been conceiving of them as uh, monsters in the sense of direct expressions of the entities. But pigs but are people they... that can make choices, Johnny. No, pigs are. I, I don't think pigs are quite people. They're, oh, okay. they're they okay. are they're on the cusp. Oh, okay, they're on the cusp. I personally don't quite think they're people, but I respect those who would disagree. Okay, okay. Uh, but yeah, you could a hundred percent see them as as avatars, although. Actually, not in the case of Monster Pig, because Monster Pig emerged, like, turned up from nowhere. Yes. If there was a particularly horrid pig... But Monster Pig that, explicitly, uh, there yeah, is an Monster extra pig, pig in there, and it wasn't there. Yeah. Agape, maybe? Like, as I've said, I don't personally conceive of dogs as people enough to necessarily believe that any choice they would make would be concrete enough to constitute to a constitute pledge. A, a pledge yeah but it's a really interesting thought and i am very confident that there are going to be a lot of fanfics out there that explore it far better than i would on to another writing one Grand. this one's from elisis johnny can you talk about how the magnus archives comments on capitalism and getting tangled in systems of oppression not really because it's all it's all in it's all in the magnus archives like i'm broadly speaking i think capitalism's a big <laughs> um and that systems of oppression are real bad but it's all very complicated because it's impossible to extricate yourself from the system uh, and if you do extricate yourself from the system how much that is actually helping to dismantle the system is difficult but also when you're within a system working to dismantle it is really difficult as well because the system is designed in order to take your efforts to dismantle it and channel them into reinforcing different aspects of it Uh, and it's all a big wobbly complicated unpleasant mess and you know you could theoretically say that's analogous to the fears a bit There's an additional factor here as well, which is worth bearing in mind, which is just because of the nature of like people who are engaged in the arts and so on, as a group, we do tend to lean left. So that will affect the things that we make as a direct result of that. But I wouldn't say that it is written 
entirely as a treatise and manifesto. <laughs> no, but like it's it's very much yeah it's it, as I've said before it's very much our examination of uh, a lot of these thoughts and topics and yeah capitalism is is definitely one of the uh, one of the most cohesive metaphorical frameworks but i think there are quite a lot of uh, other metaphors that, that you can use it for it's it's about being caught in systems bigger than yourself which i think is what cosmic horror speaks to uh, yeah, very absolutely. well i think it's it's useful because it's a useful real world large scale system that people get swallowed yeah. by you could also look at it as analogous to finding yourself working under a uh, totalitarian or fascist regime yeah, true. Uh, like the idea of like, well, no, you you have to participate in an actively harmful system, or you will yourself receive harm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is like, what is the moral thing to do in that situation? Yeah, it's difficult questions and not no easy didactic answers, at least not from not from me. Well, then let's let's jump onto one that I think you can have an easy answer to. Sure. From Nimbus, it's been nagging me since I started producing fan work back in season one. Mm-hmm. Does the institute have a dress code? Yes, it's on. Like maybe page eight of the institute policies, and people read it, and then they look around and see that most people kind of disregard it. It's unnecessarily arcane in how it's written. Yeah, like it doesn't give any examples. Um, but it, the word appropriate is used like fourteen times with no reference to how yeah, exactly. something can be appropriate. It's very much there so that if Elias needs to call someone up on something. He can just be like, and your dress is unacceptable. Oh, you know what uh, it is? It's the Magnus Archives equivalent of loitering. <laughs> That's what it yeah. is. It's it's loitering. It's a rule that only comes into effect if I need to punish you for also, it. Also, no one in the archives has ever been pulled up on it, and it's a bit of a sore point around the rest of the Institute that the, 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 archi- the archives, archives staff always look just horrendous. absolutely horrendous, uh, and no one ever says boo. <laughs> Whereas, like, David in research, he wore jeans that were slightly shorter Ooh. than uh, the intended. That than, doesn't sound appropriate to me. It, it wasn't. Apparently, it wasn't appropriate. He wore them with sandals, is the thing. Well, that's why it's inappropriate. Uh, like, he'd worn them before with, like, proper shoes, and mm. no one had said anything. But weirdly, when he put them with sandals, it was the jeans it's, no, it's that Elias was talking sand- about. Sandals but... are a trip hazard. Sandals are a trip hazard. Well, but he didn't mention the sandals. Oh. He was talking about the jeans. So, where's, where's the line? <laughs> okay, cool. From Luna Quill, had you always planned to release the final episode of season four on Halloween, or was it just a lucky coincidence? I can answer this one really easily. Originally, we were hoping not to need to have a mid-season hiatus, so Halloween wasn't on the cards. Once a mid-season hiatus was on the cards, we sat down, ran the numbers, and went, "Well, ending the world Ooh, on Halloween. Actually, that'd be just you know what would swell. happen if we had this length. That'd just be that'd just be swell. So it does mean as well, rather foolishly, that the mid-season hiatus was a little bit shorter than it should have been. Also, there was a real danger because it was almost on Brexit Day, mm. and I'll be honest, I was absolutely terrified that our episode about ending the world would be forever associated with Brexit Day. But this does lead on to a pretty heavy question, actually, which I think a lot of people will mm. want to know for various reasons. From uh, Lunatic Poet, for both of you, have you experienced creative burnout while working on this podcast? If so, how do you normally recover from that sort of burnout? Yeah. Some of season two, some of season three. To a certain degree, I had to push through the burnout, which was real bad news. Generally, it's not something that you can force a recovery from. You've just got to kind of be kind to yourself, actively ensure that you have the downtime, don't beat yourself up for taking the, the time to, to recover, and just wait for it to, to get a bit better. I was It was lucky that I don't think it overlapped with any of the massively significant episodes. So it was very much... I, I withdrew from a lot of stuff that wasn't... Magnus or day job. Uh, aside from those two things, I was mainly just kind of locked down in recovery mode. Creative burnout hasn't been too much of an issue for me for the simple reason that one of the sad truths about running the business side of things is that, frankly, I don't get as much creative output as I would like. A lot of what I'm doing at the moment is working with other people's ideas, um, which is an enjoyable thing in and of its own right, but I haven't done the sit down and write Mm -hmm. for like two days solid in a long time. I haven't done it. To be fair, thinking about it, my burnout was less less creative and more writing in terms of 
the actual process of writing. Like, I could still conceive of episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... You've never just been dry. I've no. I've never known you to uh, be. Which is good, but also, like, worrying, because it'll happen someday, and I'm a little bit dreading when it happens. Um, but no, it was the, the burnout was much more in the sense of... It was just a really, really physically uncomfortable and difficult thing to sit down and type out the words. Yeah. I'd love to give people advice on how to deal with burnout. I don't really have a solution. Mine comes out in slightly weird ways. So what I have learned over the years, which is a unhelpful thing to learn, is that I delay when it happens yeah. till like when it can be oh, dealt with. Oh, you do the teacher thing. Yes. You do the teacher thing where yeah. you get through the term and then suddenly you get massively ill every for the single, entire holiday. Every single time. And you can always tell how I'm doing because my weight fluctuates. I don't have a solution for this. But what I would like people to take away from this as a Q&A, so I'll explicitly state it, is there is a danger when you are in a position of even minor responsibility within an industry or within a system where you can end up setting a bar or setting a precedent. Yeah. Magnus is the release schedule it is due to things that were beyond my control at the outset and if there's one thing I want people to take away it is not the belief that the only way to get this scale of growth is by basically sacrificing yourself to do it yeah uh, it isn't that at all and I the last thing I want is people to use us as a bar where if you're not putting yourself through the ground yeah, we're much, not we're not, not doing we're not doing this great I mean the only thing that I'm quite proud of how we do this is that we don't push the other people involved no, no. like we're very conscientious of their well-being well that, Ooh, was, that okay. was heavy yeah that's a, a big one let's move on to a nice easy one yes story boom eyeless jade will we see a bit more of melanie and georgie during season five yes no they're gone forever no they, they'll be there uh, all characters that you know are now gone forever well, we we haven't we haven't fully fully laid out season five. We'll we'll, 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 we'll talk we'll talk it. Through. They'll be they'll be turning up. Don't worry, you're fine. Um, if nothing else, we'd be running out of characters that people know if we if we yeah, hammerage yeah. many more. <laughs> We're now going to jump onto a story one, mm-hmm. which has been asked by Look Alive Sunshine, but I know has been kind of kicking around the okay. fandom a bit. Are Daisy and Basira in a romantic relationship? Oh, okay. This is going to be quite a long answer so I'd ask that people bear with me there is never going to be an explicit textual clarification of that uh, for a very specific reason so with each relationship within the series there is a specific thing that I'm trying to explore a specific mm-hmm. dynamic uh, that I feel is is the core of the relationship and, and something that I am really interested in exploring with Daisy and Basira, what that has always been is the idea of partners within a, in this case, the police, but within a, a context of an us and them mentality. So the idea of having your back against a world that is believed, rightly or wrongly, to be hostile to you. Yes. The sort of compromises that get made uh, and the the sort of excuses that you create for yourself to allow certain very harmful, uh, occasionally even evil behaviours because you have this mentality of it's us against the monsters. Well, you we have moral paradox. Exactly. We, we have to have each other's backs. And so it is this, and especially how it manifests within the context of uh, something like police work. Yeah. Now, adding an explicitly romantic aspect to that relationship would, to my mind, massively complicate and potentially subvert subvert it making a sacrifice to excuse the violent and uh, harmful acts that someone has done because you are in love with them is a very different thing to making compromises to excuse the violent and harmful acts someone has done because you have their back within a police or a a context of uh, us versus them mm. that's not to say explicitly that they are not i'm 100% not saying they are not romantically involved, and I'm I'm not going to go into what my own headcanon is uh, because that would have undue influence. It'd have massive ramifications that yeah. are going to detract from the point you're trying to make. But I will say that textually, that's not a relationship that's ever going to be codified one way or the other. Basira's entire arc is explicitly intended as 
an examination of how a siege mentality within somebody who conceives of themselves as to one degree or another keeping the peace or uh, defending people can turn toxic yeah this one's from jane the brain johnny have you ever worried you'll run out of statement ideas yes (laughs) hasn't happened yet no not yet um i i actively try and collect them from people around me if anyone ever says anything particularly spooky or anything that locks into my brain as potentially having a spooky aspect to it i will stop the conversation and i will note it down i am still wanting us to do one on coffin syndrome in submarines yes i, no, I know i know it's great it's thing. great well i don't know if we'll be able to fit it in season five i genuinely don't know if we will but we'll see we'll see Okay, I am well aware of time as it's ticking by, and uh, we Aren't have ended we up giving some heavy answers, which have eaten some. So I am going to make sure that we Hurtling get through... towards the grey. <laughs> I'm going to make sure we try and get through a few more that people are uh, wanting to get answers to, and we probably should do in the public. Sure. So, uh, Hail the Wanderer asks, mm-hmm. You've mentioned previously that in order to assume their full powers as an avatar, a death seems to be required. Does it make a difference that the death used to fuel the archivist's transformation was that of another avatar? I don't feel that a death is necessarily required to become an avatar. What is required to become an avatar is always active choice. Yes. You need to make an active decision to finally cross that threshold. Because drama. And death is a very good motivator for that sort of decision. You know, the prospect of death is is very scary, and it's such a powerful categorical thing that in many cases it is going to be the catalyst. But what I might say is I'm going to ask the next question because I think they bleed together. Sure. From Kara Roth, why does the corruption revolve so heavily around love and looking for love? Because mm. I would use the corruption as one of the examples of where they tend not they to tend die. They tend not to die or no, necessarily involve a death because that's a devotion. It's the whole Eros, Thanatos, love and death ah, Freud. thing. But what that comes back... What a co-caddle. <laughs> <laughs> but what that comes back round to, though, is that I would argue with the corruption more than most of them has probably less active yeah. death in it and it's more obsession and love. Yeah, the corruption... it does engage a lot with the idea of love and toxicity within that yeah. uh, and the the things you do not not just for like romantic love but for a sense of belonging yeah it links thematically in my mind to the idea of the hive to the idea of colonies of mold almost the like a lot this, of insinuation the, yeah the idea of like the many as one and being part of a group or part of a whole and how that very deep human desire can be corrupted and can turn uh turn rotten although i suppose in many ways that does link back to death in the idea of like the death of the self true the idea of subsuming yourself in a wider whole which um, in terms then of the original question to do with avatars and whether mm. a death is required for transformation it is not required but it is common yeah i think that's probably the simplest way of putting it yeah you know what i'd go so far as to say that a metaphorical death is required i can tell you now that a metaphorical death will be required for the simple reason that if it isn't happening it's kind of a bad bit of drama uh, yeah like but that's if, where script versus law yeah like of... it's it's one of those things where like the uh the, the thematic aspects are beholden to the drama of the thing yeah, like the fact bit. it is a fictionalized thing where you need to have some pretty high moments of drama mean that you're more domestic avatars <laughs> that like just will come to their full power through just like being horrible in very mundane real ways they're probably not making the cut for <laughs> for the the drama it's mainly the death it's mainly, mainly the mainly the death thing mainly the death <laughs> Death and sex. <laughs> right, we're going to jump on to complete tonal change. Yes. Boom, from basically everyone. How's the Admiral doing? Oh, he's... Uh... <laughs> You'll see. He's fine. He's happy. What really... Here's, here's a sneaky little mm-hmm. pet peeve of mine that really bugged mm-hmm. me. Everyone was going on and on about, oh, we want the Admiral back, we want the Admiral back. I put the Admiral back in, but it was the one where Melanie's there going, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. I can't help you now. No one cared, apparently. No, there was had... too much going on. So everyone had been fighting tooth and nail to get the Admiral. He's there. He's having a great time. Yeah. No one bats an eyelid. The Admiral's having a great time. 
40 foot tall with laser beams for claws. We'll see. <laughs> okay, we are now perilously close to running out of time. So I'm going to do a quick fire across the board and just see how many we can get out. Cool. Okay, you ready? From basically everyone. Johnny, how did you get through the closing chant of 160 on a single breath? I was a choir boy from the age of eight. Like, I can do, I can do breath. From merely bits? Sorry, I mean eldritch strength uh, <laughs> channeling my dark masters. Of course. Oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to add one thing. I should, yeah. This should be quick fire. He did that like four takes on the trot, never batting an eyelid, and we had to take no precautions or extra steps whatsoever. It was quite peculiar. I can do an invocation. It was just funny. Just... He did four on the trot. You were like, cool, do you need another one? And then didn't breathe between one and the next. It was a yeah, bit yes, weird. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. It was did. a bit weird. Yes, bit I did. Weird. Right. From Mealy Bit. Johnny, how did you go about doing your best Ben as Elias impression? Did Ben record a version for you? Or was that just your skillful ear? It's actually, it was actually incredibly simple uh, because Ben once confided in me that his Elias voice had originally just been based on my archivist voice just making it a bit more smug yep so i just made my uh, archivist voice a bit more smug and it worked so it's the exact reverse of what you think <laughs> yeah i like i reverse engineered it because he yeah it, it was remarkably easy <laughs> from uh vine tabris johnny the laugh john does at the end of 160 was the perfect mixture of terror and delight how many times did you have to practice to perfect that laugh? Uh, we didn't practice, but we did a lot of takes. Uh, I believe um, that was one of the days where production was running into issues, so I was a little bit more like, do it again, do it yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we did, we did about, like, I think 10 takes of the laugh. Uh, but, like, this is the thing about working in audio. You tend not to practice as much as you just do a lot of takes. Record because, the practices. Yeah, because it any, could be perfect. any practice could be the best take. So this is from FFS. Mm-hmm. Will we find out more about the house on Hilltop Road, or is that storyline complete? It is not complete. This is from a bunch of people. What are those tape recorders? Are you ever going to tell us about them in detail? Yes. This is from Michael Bush. Do avatars of the lonely have other powers than just turning invisible? I mean, they don't turn invisible. They just make it so they're not where everyone else is. Uh, and also they can send people to the lonely. And It depends on the avatar. Like, every avatar has fundamentally different powers i think with the lonely the being able to send them into a world with no one else is a strong commonality um but uh like other lonely avatars might have completely different powers uh, other lonely avatars might make it so that you forgot everyone you ever cared about or that everyone you ever cared about forgot you that might be a power who knows okay on to a question from nicole can we finally get an answer as to what power is at work in mag 005 thrown away no. Actually, you know what? Yes. All oh, right. Really? Are we going to put right, this to right. bed? All right. Gonna, I'll, I'll put this to bed. All right. Let's put this to bed. Okay. Then. So, number five, thrown away, was a very early version of Tom Han and the Flesh. It was the whole, like, being able to remove something and it was playing with ideas of surplus, of uh, overproduction, this sort of thing. Also, the idea of, like, body parts that are that have been transformed uh, but a lot of the thematic elements had not been quite nailed down because it was still very early in the uh, in the writing process and so it got a bit muddied but to be honest also probably a lot of other powers at work there it's yeah. like a pretty it's a, it's a pretty keep, much a grab bag that we of, can say yeah there's lo- yeah there's, there's like it's a grab bag of fears because it's uh, like so from a meta point of view it's it's a muddy one because there's lots of different powers at play Flesh-ish. Um, yeah so like it was it, it was written as kind of flesh adjacent. Um, in retrospect, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, a lot of it was just because it's one of the it was one of the early ones, uh, and we were still workshopping a lot of stuff. I'm glad we managed to put that one to bed. I didn't know whether we'd go over the entire thing. Yeah, it's never one of those. Addressed. It's one of those ones where like I've never wanted to really say because this, the the answer is well, it's this one, but we didn't do it very well. <laughs> um, and also because I know that a lot of people are like no, I really like Thrown Away because it doesn't. Doesn't it, it sticks out? It doesn't conform. I'm like, yeah, that's because because we didn't write it consistently. Um, but at the it's same not the right time, number of gunshots, though. But at the, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I, it's one of those ones that I've been happy to answer to people who've asked it face to face to me. So I'm like, you know what? I might as well just go on record. Um, another one from basically everyone. What's up with John's lighter? Is it significant? What's going on there? Uh, yeah, it's significant from Kershaw but I know other people as well are we going to hear anything about Rosie's backstory she's a woman of mystery I don't know 
I categorically uh, want to. I, I d- but like, want and will are not the same thing. It depends. There is a non-zero chance we'll meet her in season five, but it depends if meeting her would make the series better. Uh, like, I'm not going to put her in there for the sake of having her in there. Yeah, yeah. There are certain things that are still up in the area in season five, so maybe, but I'm not promising anything. Okay, this one's from Seb. If John could tell his season one self something, what would it be? Uh, run bail. away. Just, bail. just stop. Just go Immediately away. Immediately bail. You've, you've, you've made some mistakes. <laughs> it's already a bad well, call. Also, leave Martin alone. <laughs> just bail. That's basically what everyone yeah. would say to season You're making one, a mistake. Just leave. Just leave. Elias is a prick. Just leave just, and the problem goes away. I mean, like, to be fair, they've all like it doesn't because they've already they've already joined the institute. Season they can't one, quit, well, but, technically season one they've already joined. Yeah. Okay, yeah, fair point. But it's from an emotional standpoint, that's still the advice. <laughs> um <laughs> I like I think just like Stay put. Have a perpetual Don't... slowdown, you know, like um, mm. like a strike action. Yeah, well, no, thing. no, like, like what Melanie was doing. Yeah, in, literally. In, in but just four. do that. Sustain it. Just yeah, stick yeah, yeah. with it. Yeah. And if nothing else, you'll buy yourself a good fifteen years extra. Yeah. Works yeah, for Gertrude. Yeah. This one's from Not Tori. Mm-hmm. What kind of music do you like or listen to when writing? Oh, um, my musical tastes change uh, quite a lot. Um, gradually, when I'm writing, it. I mean, it's. It's kind of a dull answer, but when I'm writing, I tend to listen to dark ambient playlists on Spotify. Also, um, rain. Also, rain. Like uh, a rain generator for some. Rain generator for some. For if if a statement has like a a muted quality to it, I like to listen to it. Rain sounds. Otherwise, just just like generic dark ambient spooky sounds. Uh, it's not a particularly interesting answer, but it, it's it gets me in the headspace. Outside of that, currently in a post rock phase. Um, really enjoying just ridiculous uh, albums with like the most pretentious title names. <laughs> uh, oh, what was it? Something, something like Shit Heap Gloria, Ode to a Town Planner, or something like that. <laughs> nice. But they're they're all just ridiculous, and I love them. And it's just half of it. It's just elderly American men just rambling on about. Literally radio anything. towers <laughs> or like weird spiritualist conspiracies um <laughs> right i'm gonna give you a, a choice for the last yep, yep, last yep. question of this right, round right, of okay, okay, okay. So, would you rather a question mm-hmm. that touches on rpgs or Ooh. a question that touches further upon cats big decision time you know what what are you feeling I'm going to keep the cats for the Patreon. Okay, okay. RPGs then. So this is from Thimbreus. Mm-hmm. What classes would the Archives crew be in D&D? Hard mode. Only one of them can be a warlock, i.e. with a patron. Right, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, let's let's have a think. Um, so, Elias would be a cleric, I think, rather than a warlock. I think... You could go mastermind with him, rogue mastermind. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it it look to be clear, it is cleric. Like you are, you are. Correct. I mean, like Tim's a fighter. Like I'd love to say he's like a bard because of his high charisma. Gone so far as paladin, because high charisma, punchy, <sighs> no, very self righteous. Like no, he like he he takes his. I think his his turn is too pragmatic to be a paladin. I would agree with that. So we've got Tim as a fighter. Uh, I think I think Basira is a paladin. Oh yeah, yeah. Serious paladin. Daisy starts out. I think Daisy starts out as a rogue. Actually, she starts out as like an assassin rogue, and then converts into uh, a barbarian that refuses to use her rage powers. <laughs> That's yeah, bang on. Um, <laughs> Daisy, Daisy, multi-class. They didn't, they yeah, didn't yeah, really yeah. gel as much as it could have. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Melanie. Melanie is. Oh. It's rogue. It's got to be rogue. No, no, no. You like? I'm sorry. You're just. You're just saying that because Lyd plays uh, Sasha in, in real in, life. She plays RPG. rogues in real life. Yeah. Uh, um, no, I think I would do it as rogue investigator. I really would. Because she's got that. Angle I think to she's her. a ranger. Because she's got her favourite enemy. Ooh. 
Okay, no, yeah, I can actually get on board with that. She's very driven in terms of tracking, and when she's out of her specific element, she finds it very difficult. You know what? You know what? I take mine back. Ranger is a better choice there. Ranger is a better choice. In which case, then... Um, so who does that, who does we, that leave? So Obviously, we've, we've, still, we've still got we've Martin, still got Martin and John. And John. Uh, original Sasha, wizard. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Like, conscientious knows her stuff. Um, a does, bit too empirical when her life's on the line. Does the reading, uh, and unfortunately, very easy to kill when found alive. Very squishy, <laughs> very, very squishy. squishy. Um, okay, then. Martin, then. <sighs> Difficult. Commoner. <laughs> uh, I um, will overambitious NPC. I'm probably going to go with Bard because his thing is trying to support everyone else. I think he might just be a cohort. Does, I think he might just he's, he's be a Bard. I think he might he's, just be a cohort. He's, he's he's a Bard, but unfortunately, he doesn't have an instrument. He chose poetry. And isn't very well min-maxed. He, now, what he is, is he's a bard who was just like, cool, guys, so what skills do we still have to cover? Proficiency in land vehicles. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. What, what, oh, oh, we don't have, uh, we don't have urban yeah. survival. Okay, I'll take that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and John, I mean, John's the warlock, isn't he? Yes, due to the fluff, but I still maintain he doesn't play like a warlock. No, that's fair. That's fair. What does he play like then? He plays like a wizard. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. He doesn't because he doesn't do, like, he He's not meticulous. He's not meticulous in how he approaches things. I didn't say he was Wizards, a good wizard. No. Nah. He's a wizard that picks a fight with something far bigger than he is and releases something he's into the warlock world. He's a warlock who thinks he's a druid. Expand. He thinks, like, a lot of his stuff comes naturally from connections that he feels are natural. Uh, and I think that he tries to engage with the world. But actually, a lot of his stuff is coming from very dark Oh, no, you know what he place. is. We've forgotten to take into account the player behind the character. What John is, is a warlock played by a player who's like, I'm not going to take anything for combat. And everyone's like, come on, come on, please take something. No, no, I'm going to take only social abilities. And everyone's like, I mean, okay. Or he's just a warlock, or he's a warlock who the player hasn't actually told anyone else is a warlock and is pretending that they're a druid. <laughs> Right, we're going to have to call it there. If yours hasn't been answered on here, there's always a chance that we'll be answering it on the extra Patreon episode. Obviously, it is worth mentioning that we are on our season hiatus currently. Yep. We are going to be releasing uh, hiatus content about once every two weeks or so, where there's going to be extra things to sort of keep things moving and let people see a bit more into how we make things, stuff like that. And um, in the meantime, obviously, do check us out on social media. Do check out Twitter. I mean, if you're already listening, you... a lot of people do. Yep. Um, but apart from that, it's just say thanks. You've made it to the end of the world. Oh, you yeah. Know? Thanks, everyone. It's a good job on uh, that one. Hope, hope you enjoyed the ride. That isn't over. That isn't no, it's over. Not, it's not over. There is it's a full over. season. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> but apart from that, I guess that's everything. So thanks, everyone, and uh, we'll be checking with you real soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. This episode is distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. For more information, visit RustyQuill.com. Tweet us at the Rusty Quill, visit us on Facebook, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, we are here to talk to you about Sucre Bay a perfumery we love so much, they have not one, but two official The Magnus Archives perfumes, one inspired by John and Martin, and another inspired by the mysterious Ex Altiora, a book from the library of Jürgen Leitner. Sucre Bay also make official perfumes for our friends over at Old Gods of Appalachia, including Blood and Bone and Unknown Roads. You should check them out. Sucre Bay is a women-owned and operated perfumery that is vegan and cruelty-free, witchy and sometimes irreverent. Expect perfumes like You're in a Cult, Call Your Dad, or Vodka and Swearing, the ever-popular Chloroform, or Papa's Waffles. Sucre Bay do a range of exciting and unique fragrances you won't find anywhere else. They broadly fit into the following five categories. Classic scents that pass the test of time. Goth scents for those who like it dark and mysterious. Witchy scents that are mysterious and potiony. Nerdy scents for all the self-professed nerds out there, and femme scents, the classically floral and sweet scents, but we recommend them for anyone of any gender.
Sucrabe's small batch perfumes are not like any other. You can find out more by going to www.rustyquill.com forward slash perfume. That's rustyquill.com forward slash P-E-R-F-U-M-E. Also, you can join the supportive and kind Sucre Bay community with over 18,000 members on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Sucre Bay. That's S-U-C-R-E-A-B-E-I-L-L-E. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello listeners. This is Anusha Battersby of the Magnus Protocol. Let you know about the latest Rusticwell original podcast on Neon Inkwell, The Pit Below Paradise. The Pit Below Paradise is a US coming of age tale set years in the future in the ruins of a burnt world. Small communities struggle in the ashes, and in Paradise Village, Dorian is set to sacrifice himself for the hope of a better tomorrow. At least that's what he thought. But when the date of prophecy is pulled into question, Dorian's whole world is turned on its side. Forced to attend college to keep up appearances, Dorian meets Will, a former gravedigger with no reason to suspect his vibrant new roommate might soon be facing death, and Ruth, a returned runaway trying to make peace with the past. As Dory only just starts to learn about herself, she is forced to choose whether she still believes everything she was told growing up, or whether she wants to place her trust in a wider, more daunting world that she's only just come to know. The Pit Below Paradise is available now on Neon Inkwell, our ongoing home for full cast fiction podcasts, written by creators from all around the world. Just search Neon Inkwell wherever you get your podcasts.